This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome back to another episode of Today with Jeff Fines. My name is Aaron, and I'm really glad you're joining me here as we conclude the second part of this message. Last time, Pastor Jeff started a message looking at Isaiah's life in Isaiah chapter 6, where he discovers that he's been making big mistakes his entire life. Now, we can relate to this because I'm sure that you and I, as the course of our life has gone on, we've discovered that there's mistakes we've been making that we didn't realize at first. Now, Pastor Jeff is going to get back into this message to see what practical steps we can apply to our own lives. And we're picking back up in Isaiah chapter 6, where his life is really starting to become unglued. So as we continue this message, be thinking about how Isaiah's life relates to your life. And we'll get into this message right here on Today with Jeff Fines. Look at what happens in verse 5. Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now he says two things, and I want you to stay focused here. First of all, he says, I'm ruined. When I come into contact with the holiness of God, I'm ruined. I am unglued, it says. I have come undone. I am unglued. And second, he says, I have unclean lips. Two images that you have to understand. The first is this. Let's deal with unclean lips first. Why does he say, I have unclean lips? Well, the answer is because he's a prophet. And to a prophet, his identity, the glue that holds him together, that makes him acceptable, that makes him okay, his identity, his significance is found in his lips, in the words that he speaks. To put it another way, what the arm was to Nolan Ryan, the lips are to Isaiah. What the feet were to Fred Astaire, the lips are to Isaiah. What the camera is to Steven Spielberg, the lips were to Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. He spoke on behalf of God. When all else failed, Isaiah could always fall back on the reality that, hey, I may be weak in these areas and I may have missed the boat in this area or missed the mark over here, but after all, I am a prophet of God. Now, stay with me here because this is mind-boggling. It's interesting when Isaiah meets God, he doesn't start thinking about his sin. He starts thinking about his righteousness. You with me? When he comes into contact with the holiness of God, he does not look at his sin, but instead he looks at his strengths. He repents. He repents of his righteousness. It's like his good deeds are the ones that he thinks about, what he's good at, what he believes he's best at. Listen, you have something in your life that you think makes you acceptable and okay. 
All of you. And your identity's tied to that thing. And you think, as long as I have this in my life, the world has to accept me. For some of you, you're just handsome. You, and you say, you know you are. Hey, I, I may not be smart and I may not be able to do these things. Not that you can't be both handsome and smart. I didn't say that. But you say to yourself, you know, but I've got my looks. And as long as I have my looks, the world has to accept me and they will accept me. For others, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you're a musician. Yeah, you, and that's your identity. That's your significance. You say, you know, I'm not good at these other things, but I'm a great musician and the world has to say, accept me. I'm acceptable to the world. I'm significant. For others, your athletic prowess, you're an athlete. And you say, you know, I can't do these other things, but I'm great at athletics and the world will accept me. And this is my security and this is my significance. For some of you, it's your ability to cook. You're a great cook. For some of you, it's your ability to eat. <laughs> Whatever it is, all of us have something. All of us have something. We say, you know, this makes me acceptable. This is my identity. This makes me okay. And when Isaiah says, I am become unglued, he is speaking psychologically. Yeah, psychology was in the Old Testament too. He knows that everybody has something that's a basis for your self-esteem. In the same way you do that with the world, you do that with God. Everybody has something in their lives that you think makes you okay with God. And when you stand before him, you're going to appeal to that thing. And you're going to say, well, I didn't do all this, but I did do this, God. And that makes me acceptable before you. Now, here's the problem. Isaiah discovered when the glue that you think holds you together and acceptable before God meets the holiness of God, you become unglued and shattered in a million pieces because you realize that what you, make, what you think makes you okay is totally inadequate before God. It pales in comparison. You're not even close. And for Isaiah, it was his lips. He would think, I'm acceptable because I'm a preacher. I'm acceptable because I speak your word. There's a problem, though, with that. There's a story of a king. He, uh, he has a gardener that comes into his court. And the gardener says, King, you know that I have a plot of land beside your plot of land, and I grow carrots and vegetables. This year I grew a carrot. This is the best carrot I've ever grown, and I wanted to come personally and deliver it to you out of love, respect, and appreciation for the way you rule the kingdom. And the king discerned his heart that it was genuine. And before the gardener left, he said, Sir, that plot of land that I own next to yours, I'd like to give to you. It is obvious that you're a great steward of the land, and I pray that everything you do prospers. And the gardener left overjoyed. Now the nobleman who works in the king's court overheard the conversation. He thought, wow, I mean, if that's what you get for a carrot, what would you get for a really nice gift? So the next morning he comes waltzing into the king's kingdom with a black stallion behind him. And he says, oh king, you know that I breed horses. This is the best horse I've ever bred. And out of love and respect and the way you rule the kingdom, I'd like to give you this black stallion as a gift. And the king also discerned his heart, said nothing and dismissed him could tell the look of astonishment on the nobleman's face. And the king said, let me explain. The gardener gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. You got it? Even when we do great acts of good, more often than not, it is self-serving. And Isaiah learns, when I come into the presence of God, what I thought made me so strong makes me so weak compared to the superlative holiness of God. George Whitfield said that when you want to have peace with God, you got to do two things. Old preacher, Whitfield said, you got to number one, repent of your sins. And you expect him to say, repent or receive Jesus, but he doesn't. He says, if you want to have peace with God, Whitfield says, 
You've got to repent of your sins. And second, you've got to repent of your righteousness. All those things you think that because they're in your life, you can stand before God with your head held high because they make you acceptable. For some of you, it's your giving because you help others. For some of you, it's because you help people who are homeless. It's because you serve at our Thanksgiving outreach. It's because of your intellect. You think it's because of your evangelism and the way you share your faith. You, because of the way, you think it's because of the way you bring people to church. You think it's because of your moral rectitude. You think it's because of your integrity and honesty. That makes you okay, and God has to accept you. For some of you, it's your restraint. I asked a lady who was dying in Zimbabwe one day. They asked me to go into her room and to pray with her. I said, do you know God? Yes, I know God. She said, are you going to meet him? Yes, I am. Are you ready to meet him? Yes, I am. Are you going to go to heaven? Yes, I am. I said, how do you know? And here was her response, because I never killed anybody. Some of you think because you've never done anything really, really bad that that measures up to the holiness of God. You've never stolen anything, which I would beg to differ if I had some time with you. You've never killed anybody. For Paul, it was the law. Romans 6 and Isaiah 6 are similar. Paul said, I love the law, and he put his confidence in the law because I keep it so well, because I'm good, morally speaking. But then he began to understand what thou shalt not covet actually meant. That thou shalt not covet actually meant that there should never be a time in your life when you're discontent. And he said, I died that day. I died, and I knew the law would never, never save me. Now, Whitfield goes on to say that you would have such a low view of God that you think the amount, any amount of your holiness would make you presentable before God. And he says, that thing that you think makes you okay with God is an idol because you're depending on that thing to save you. And those are the last to go. Dr. Tim Keller says this, I love this. He says, the holiness of God not only shows you the seriousness of your sin, but the sin of your seriousness. That you are so serious about being holy and good, you think that's gonna save you. When in reality, you are overestimating your own goodness and underestimating the holiness of God. You're losing on both ends. And there's only one thing God can do is strip you of all of that and bring you to the end of yourself. And then, thank God, literally, the holiness of God heals us. If God overwhelmed us and stripped us without healing us, that would be a masochist. But he doesn't. He sets us up for the victory. Look at what happens. You're never going to find grace. You're never going to find the thing that makes you happy, the thing that gives you that overarching joy. You're never going to find that thing that gives you confidence. You're never going to find the thing that you know makes you okay until you are brought out somehow of your self-righteousness, and everybody has it. And Isaiah, when he comes into contact with the holiness of God, he does the same thing the people in Revelation chapter 6 do. Isaiah wants the mountains to fall on him. He wants the hills to cover him. He wants somebody to help him hide from the face of the one who sits on the throne. But then look what happens in verse six. Then one of the seraphs flew to me and a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. 
He knew exactly what was going on here. It must have made him absolutely thrilled. On one hand, he's broken, he's undone, he's been stripped of anything that he makes him acceptable before God, and now all of a sudden, the seraph goes and gets a coal from the altar, and he knows what the altar's all about. He's a prophet. It's where sins are forgiven. It's where sins are atoned for. It's where somebody else pays the penalty, pays the price so that you can go free, so that you can become clean. So he would have been excited as this coal touches his lips, proving to Isaiah that not only is his righteousness forgiven, but his sins have been forgiven. And now the guilt has been burned away by the coal from the altar. And later on, Isaiah is going to write in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, he's going to write these words, by his stripes, we are healed. One of the most misunderstood passages in Isaiah. Although I believe that God does heal physically, this passage primarily is about spiritual healing. That once you've been broken and once you've come to the end of yourself, the only way you can be right with God is not by being good, but by the stripes as Jesus goes to the cross and pays the penalty for your sin and mine. See, until you get that, you don't know what it is to be a Christ follower. That thing you're banking on that's going to make you okay before God is going to put you in big, big trouble. It's only by the cross of Jesus. Now, I've said some things during this series, and I've said them often enough that you should be able to fill in the blank now. Let's test you. I've said the Bible is not a book about how bad you are. It's a book about how good God is. And the other thing I've said is that God was willing to lose his only son so that he would not lose you. That's why the cross is so powerful. Now, let me end this. Stay with me. There are some of you that want to love God, but you just don't. Love is something that comes out from the inside. And you want to love and feel that emotion for God, but you just don't. We guys really struggle. You want to love God. When you hear me say, do you love God? You want to, but you just don't feel that love like you wish you could. There's a reason. You need an Isaiah experience. What do you mean? Well, let me use an example here. Let me use my buddy Tim down here. Don't worry, Tim. You don't have to come up. Sit right there. You're fine. I got a buddy, my buddy, Tim, I play golf with. He's down here on the front row. Tim, if I told Tim that I was going to pay your bill, well, he'd be happy, but he'd say, well, which one? Because that'd be a big difference, wouldn't it? What if I said, Tim, I'm going to pay your cell phone bill last month. Okay, thanks, man. That's cool. Thanks. What if I told him then I was going to pay his house payment last month? Okay, what if I move from there? To, I'm going to pay all the student loans of your family. And yours too. That, okay, now it's getting exciting. I'm going to pay all your IRS back taxes, even though I know you don't have any. I, I would pay them. But then what if I told you, Tim, I'm going to pay all your bills from now on to the day you die? Oops. Doesn't that produce some kind of joy? Martin Lloyd-Jones, from whom I borrowed this illustration, says the level of gratitude and love corresponds to the measure of the debt, right? Put in another way, he says, the size of the debt determines the magnitude of the joy. See, your happiness and love for God will only become a reality when you realize what exactly he saved you from, that you were headed for a Christless eternity, that you were headed away from God for all of eternity, and God looked down and said, I love you, and I'm going to be willing to give up my own son. I'm going to lose him so that I don't lose you. And you come to God with nothing in your hand that says, because I have this, you have to save me, but you come in humility. And a holy God looks at that humility and says, okay, I see that you get it, that there's no way you could ever measure up. That's okay. That's all right. I've given my son that you might go free. Hear me now. Unless, 
Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you will never be healed by the grace of God. So was there a time in your life? Was there a time when you were wounded and you realized, man, I can never be good enough to, I mean, this is God, the creator, sustainer of the universe. This is God. I can never measure up. I'm undone. What can I possibly do? Well, maybe I've got this, but the spirit strips that. Well, maybe I've got this and the spirit of God strips that. And then you come to God and you say, the only way I can measure up is if you heal me. Do you remember the, the Chronicles of Narnia, Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Remember that? Remember Eustace? I mean, within the first 20 minutes of the movie, you, you hated this guy because he was bitter, he was jealous, he was angry, he was just miserable. And the boat docks on an island and he goes on a bit of a treasure hunt and he finds the treasure. And immediately he starts thinking about retribution because now he has the power and the wealth for revenge. And he falls asleep on the treasure that's covered with a dragon skin. And he dreams of revenge, retribution. And while he's sleeping, what is true internally becomes true externally. There's a transformation. He's turned into a dragon. And now this transformation leads to alienation because he can't go back to the ship. They kill dragons. He doesn't know what to do. And then he has an encounter with Aslan, the Christ figure. And Aslan says to the boy, the dragon shows him a pool of water and he says, strip and jump in. And Eustace thinks to himself, what do you mean strip? You mean there's still a little boy underneath this? Inside the little boy still exists? Aslan says, yes, so strip and jump in. He starts trying to peel away the layers and he can't, it's too hard. And then Aslan says to him, you're gonna have to let me do it. And I love how C.S. Lewis writes it. He says, in the words of Eustace, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt, and he threw me into the water, and I'd turned into a boy again. Now, do you know the metaphor? The metaphor is this. If you want to be transformed, God's going to have to go deep. He's going to have to peel back all those layers where you think you're good enough already and you really don't need that much forgiveness. And he's going to have to go so far into you that you start to be overjoyed at the prospect of the cross. And after he goes deep into you, he's going to tell you, as a sign of the internal transformation that has taken place, Eustace, I want you to jump into the water and be clean. Now, don't you find it interesting that on the day of Pentecost and Peter preaches that first sermon, that the content of that message is that we are not holy people and that puts us at odds with God. And the brothers say, what do we do then, Peter? What can we do? It's the first day of the first church. What do we do? Day of Pentecost. What do we do? And what does he say? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this promise is for you and all your children and all generations to come, you and me. And the number that was added to the church that day was 3,000. So here's what I want to do. When I pray, just in a second, if you've never come to the end of yourself and you still think that you're good with God because of something you did when you were young, something you're doing now, you think your identity's in that, 
When you meet the holiness of God, you will become unglued. In fact, one of the things that angers God is the person who thinks they don't need him or his forgiveness or grace, that they are fine on their own because they are good moral people. That's severely underestimating the holiness of God. And he doesn't like that. He says, be honest, humble yourself, and then come into the water of baptism. This is not magical water. It doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you is the blood of Jesus through the cross. But it's interesting that Jesus gave a command. He said, as a sign of the internal change, I want you to come into the water as an external sign that you're being raised to walk in a new way of life. I just cannot figure out that if you've never been baptized, why you wouldn't do it. It's a command of scripture. It's a direct command. Jesus said, this is the red letter edition. Be baptized. Be baptized. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Jeff, I want to, I really do, but I can't. Because if I'm baptized, then that will be saying that my parents who weren't baptized weren't right with God. No. No, the Bible talks about available light. God is merciful and gracious. You're only responsible for what you know. The problem is you now know. So now you're responsible. Jesus said, be baptized. Some of you come from churches that might have baptized as infants. I'm not being critical. I'm simply saying that as you read the book of Acts, here's what you read. In the book of Acts, the Bible says that baptism is for adults because it has to be a decision you make. It can't be a decision made for you. Am I questioning your salvation? No, stop that. Stop the no. I'm just saying there's a command of scripture that tells you, you need to be baptized. Why on earth would you not do that? Some people say, okay, Jeff, I got it. I'm going to be baptized, but I have to wait till I clean my life up first. There's just one area of my life that I've got to get straight and then I'll be baptized. No, you're missing the point. There will never be a time in your life when it won't be a mess in some area. I've been a pastor for 26 years. And I'm still working on my life. That's just life. You're doing this by faith. You don't get your life. You think after you're baptized, you're going to be sinless? Well, you really do think the water's magical. No, 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 no. This is a step of faith. A step of faith that God, you've forgiven past, present, future sins by the cross. Not anything I did. But I'm going to obey your command. The first command given to a new believer. I hope you will come. I hope that you'll take advantage of this day that there won't be a person in this room who walks out that has not obeyed the basic command of Scripture. My hope and prayer as this message has come to an end is that you're motivated to take that next step, whether that's committing your life to Jesus, maybe you haven't been baptized yet and that's your next step. And if you're confused on how to do that or you don't know where to turn, I would encourage you connect with a local pastor near you. And if there isn't a local pastor near you, we have resources at Pastor Jeff's home church in Los Angeles, California to help you get baptized. And your next step would be to go to one and all 
media and hit that Ask Jeff button or contact us and we will help you take your next step in following Jesus. This is so important and I'm praying that you're inspired to do just that. I look forward to your company next time right here on Today with Jeff Fines. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.